Welcome to MD Notified, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufjuk, and today we're going to be talking about salmonella infections. Now, this is kind of an interesting topic because it's a little bit of history, it is a little bit of epidemiology, and it's a little bit of pathophysiology. And it's definitely an applicable topic because we do see this in pediatrics fairly commonly. So broadly, there's two categories of salmonella disease, and those are typhoidal salmonella, which causes enteric fever, and non-typhoidal salmonella, which predominantly causes a bacterial gastroenteritis. So let's start by talking about typhoidal strains of salmonella. These are strains such as salmonella typhi and salmonella paratyphi, and they cause a disease process known as enteric fever, or sometimes also known as typhoid fever. Now, typically the cases that we see in the United States are in people who have a positive travel history and have recently been in an area where salmonella typhi is a little bit more endemic. So overall, we're lucky to see about 400 cases of typhoid fever or enteric fever annually in the United States, which is not very much at all. Um, But typically what it looks like is someone will be exposed to salmonella typhi or salmonella paratyphi, and they'll incubate that bacterium in the gut for about 7 to 14 days um, or up to as long as 30 days before they start to show signs and symptoms of enteric fever. Enteric fever kind of is a very nonspecific disease in terms of its symptoms. So patients will develop malaise, fever, myalgias, headache, anorexia, and sometimes diarrhea and abdominal pain. So although those symptoms of typhoid fever are fairly nonspecific, one clinical pearl that you can look for is relative bradycardia. So these are patients who will oftentimes come in with high fever, and when you're looking through their vital signs, you may see that they have a heart rate that's not quite as elevated as you might expect in the setting of the degree of fever that they have. So let's say they have a fever of 104, um, but they only have a heart rate of 95, relative bradycardia. One thing that's pretty different about enteric fever compared to salmonella gastroenteritis is the pathogens, salmonella typhi and salmonella paratyphi, don't cause as much of an inflammatory response in the gastrointestinal epithelium when they are inoculating the host. And so people who have enteric fever, since they don't have that inflammatory response as commonly at the level of the GI tract, they may not necessarily have diarrhea. This is in direct contrast to people who get salmonella, non-typhoidal strains of salmonella that lead to bacterial gastroenteritis because those strains of salmonella do cause a very, very robust inflammatory response right at the level of the gastrointestinal mucosa. And that, of course, leads to the clinical findings of really severe diarrhea. So people with enteric fever, they may just present right out of the blue with a travel history, fever, malaise, anorexia, headache, myalgias, sort of nonspecific findings, but they may or may not have abdominal pain and diarrhea. So that's kind of just one thing to keep in mind. People who present with typhoid fever 
are going to be treated with antibiotics. And as we'll find out later in the episode, that is not always the case for people who present with salmonella disease. Some of you may remember the story of Typhoid Mary, who was a cook in the early 1900s and was an asymptomatic carrier of salmonella, typhi, um, and unknowingly, and then later maybe knowingly, um, spread salmonella to the people who she cooked for. So she was a cook in about eight different family households and about 22 different people out of those households wound up getting salmonella disease. And back in the early 1900s, they really didn't have the antibiotics that we have today to treat salmonella, and they didn't really have much understanding of the pathogen. So that's kind of a, an infamous story of salmonella typhi on our own soil in the United States. One interesting thing that we now know about being a chronic carrier of salmonella typhi and paratyphi is that the likelihood of becoming a chronic carrier, which is defined as shedding that organism in your stool for over a year, is related to the presence or absence of uh, colidolithiasis or gallstones. So if you have gallstones in your gallbladder, those are um, a great place for salmonella typhi and paratyphi to kind of hide out because the gallstones form a biofilm. And so the bacterium can just sort of hang out in your gallbladder. And when you eat and your gallbladder squeezes, that bile that's excreted into your intestines is actually infected with that bacterium. And in that way, it kind of makes its way back into your GI tract and is chronically excreted in your feces. So that's kind of an interesting fact about being a chronic carrier of salmonella typhi or paratyphi. Now that we've discussed typhoidal strains of salmonella, let's go ahead and talk about the much more common subgroup of salmonella, which is the non-typhoidal salmonella strains. Now, in contrast to typhoidal strains, where we mostly think about salmonella typhi and salmonella paratyphi, there are many different strains of non-typhoidal salmonella disease. And as I mentioned earlier, most people who get non-typhoidal salmonella will present with a bacterial gastroenteritis, and that is true in pediatrics. However, there is a small subset of people who, particularly immunocompromised people and young children, who will get non-typhoidal salmonella and actually present with systemic disease, and we call that invasive non-typhoidal salmonella. So there's kind of two categories, two subcategories of non-typhoidal salmonella disease, pure gastroenteritis and invasive disease. But before we go into either one of those, let's talk a little bit about where we get non-typhoidal salmonella. Non-typhoidal salmonella is much more common in the United States. In fact, we have over a million cases every single year. So where are those cases coming from? Well, it's kind of interesting because the classic things that we think about in terms of getting salmonella, at least I do, is chicken and eggs. And while those are two very important and very common sources of salmonella disease, there are a couple other sources that we can talk about. One important source of salmonella infection is animals. And while we think of poultry and like live chickens, backyard chickens as being a source of salmonella, and they certainly are, 
Um, you can also get salmonella disease from amphibians and reptiles. In fact, household pets like turtles, iguanas, bearded dragons, and lizards are a very common source of salmonella disease in pediatric patients. And you can imagine why, right? If you are a little kid and you have a pet lizard or a pet turtle, you're going to be touching the turtle. You're going to be maybe kissing the turtle. You're not going to wash your hands necessarily before and after touching that animal the way that you should. And then you might put your hand in your mouth and in that way become infected with salmonella disease. Another common source of salmonella infections is from animals that come from outside the home, in particular things like petting zoos where you're exposed to a wide variety of sort of farmyard animals, that can also be a source of salmonella infection. And then, of course, in addition to things like chickens, eggs, reptiles, amphibians, petting zoos, you also have the classic fecal-oral transmission that occurs with most other bacterial gastroenteritis disease. Now, because salmonella disease is taken so seriously and there is a lot of morbidity associated with having a salmonella infection, salmonella is one of the most common reportable diseases in the United States. So if you ever have a patient who has either typhoidal or non-typhoidal salmonella disease, that is definitely something that's going to be reported to the health department because they are constantly looking for either food product sources of salmonella and outbreaks, for example, in things historically like peanut butter, lettuce, chicken, egg products, those types of things. And you'll often see this type of thing in the news. In fact, in peak COVID times, I remember seeing several different news articles about backyard chickens. In the middle of the pandemic, lots of people were getting backyard chickens as pets. And maybe these were people who hadn't had those types of pets before. And we actually saw a rise in non-typhoidal salmonella disease Um, particularly gastroenteritis, because of the increase in the amount of people who were keeping those animals as pets. So now that we've sort of discussed how we get non-typhoidal salmonella disease, let's talk about the two different flavors of non-typhoidal salmonella. The most common, of course, as we discussed, is bacterial gastroenteritis. So typically what happens is you come in contact with salmonella, and then the bacteria invades the gut. As we discussed, non-typhoidal salmonella creates this really robust immune response at the level of the GI tract. And after an incubation period of about six to 48 hours, you develop this severe diarrhea. Some people will have bloody diarrhea, some people won't, and some people will have fever and other people won't. But in general, you get a really severe diarrheal illness. In contrast, people who have invasive non-typhoidal salmonella disease kind of present in a variety of ways, and that sort of just depends on what type of invasive disease they have. As I mentioned, invasive disease comprises different disease entities like meningitis, osteomyelitis, bacteremia, septic joint, endocarditis. It can be a whole range of different disease processes, but just all caused by non-typhoidal salmonella. Now, most people who have invasive non-typhoidal salmonella disease will be bacteremic, um, but a small percentage of them will have those other disease processes. 
So let's talk a little bit about treatment for non-typhoidal salmonella disease. We already discussed that people who have typhoidal salmonella disease, like enteric fever, those people will all get antibiotic therapy. However, not everyone who has non-typhoidal salmonella is going to go on to receive antibiotic therapy. Essentially, if you are a higher-risk individual, for example, someone who is immunocompromised, someone who has sickle cell anemia, someone who is an infant less than three months of age, or an elderly person, you are at higher risk for invasive and severe disease. So if you have bacterial gastroenteritis, you will go on to receive antibiotic therapy. In contrast, if you are an immunocompetent host who is over three months of age and you have bacterial gastroenteritis alone, you do not need to go on to receive antibiotic therapy. And the reason for that is we know that giving antibiotic therapy to an immunocompetent host who has pure gastroenteritis disease will not shorten the duration of diarrhea and will actually increase the amount of time that that person sheds salmonella in the stool. So antibiotics have not shown to be helpful in people who are immunocompetent and who purely have gastroenteritis disease. It has also been shown that kids who are less than five years of age are already at higher risk for being for shedding salmonella in their stool for a long period of time, oftentimes up to 12 weeks. And so we really want to make sure that we're using antibiotics kind of stingily because we don't want to have those people out in the community shedding salmonella in their stool for long periods of time. The flip side to that is that if you have invasive non-typhoidal salmonella disease, so even if you're immunocompetent, and if you have salmonella meningitis or salmonella osteomyelitis or salmonella bacteremia, all of those people are at higher risk for adverse outcomes from their salmonella disease, and so those people will go on to receive antibiotics as well. So just to repeat that one more time, because I know it's kind of confusing, if you have bacterial gastroenteritis, but you're in a high-risk category, you do receive antibiotics. If you have bacterial gastroenteritis and you are an immunocompetent host who is over three months of age, you can just get supportive care. If you have invasive non-typhoidal disease, then you will also receive antibiotics regardless of if you're immunocompetent or not or less than three months or not, everyone who has invasive disease receives antibiotic therapy. So now that we know who to give antibiotics to and who not to give antibiotics to, the question becomes, what antibiotic are we going to choose? And this question becomes increasingly difficult as time goes on because really there are certain strains of salmonella out there that are becoming multidrug resistant. And so I anticipate that this is a discussion that's going to change kind of in the years to come. But for now, our first line IV medication for salmonella disease is a third generation cephalosporin, most commonly ceftriaxone. And then we will send the bug for susceptibilities, and then we'll narrow based on those susceptibilities. Oftentimes, we will narrow to something like either a fluoroquinolone or azithromycin. The treatment course is also going to vary a little bit depending on what 
type of salmonella you have. So if you have just pure gastroenteritis, but let's say you're an infant less than three months of age, and we're going to treat you with antibiotic therapy for that reason, then you may only get a five to seven day course of antibiotics. However, if you're bacteremic, you would get a two week course of antibiotics. And if you have meningitis, you may get longer than two weeks of antibiotics. So it really just depends on what type of infection you have. So let's say you have your patient, let's a two-month-old who had salmonella gastroenteritis, you have them on appropriate antibiotic therapy, and you're sitting in the room with the parents, what are you going to tell them in terms of anticipatory guidance? For example, when can this infant go back to daycare, and what can the parents do in the future to prevent salmonella infections from happening to their other children and to this child again in the future? Well, for non-typhoidal salmonella infections, particularly gastroenteritis, children can go back to school and back to daycare after they are 24 hours symptom-free, so no diarrhea for 24 hours. I would also counsel the parents that it is possible that the child will be shedding bacteria for several weeks in the stool, and so they need to make sure that they're doing really, really good hand washing around diaper changes for that infant. There are several strategies we can use to reduce the risk of salmonella infection in the household. Number one is not having amphibians or reptiles in households with children who are five years of age or younger. If you do have reptiles or amphibians as pets, make sure that you don't kiss your pet reptiles and that you wash your hands before and after handling those pets. That also goes for pet chickens. Hand washing is really key with salmonella and so is safe food preparation. Make sure you're counseling your families to separate meat preparation from the preparation of the rest of the meal. And of course, to minimize fecal-oral spread, no one who has diarrhea should be preparing family meals. All right, and that's a wrap on our episode on salmonella infections. Most of the information sourced in this episode came either from Pediatrics in Review the AAP Red Book, or the CDC Yellow Book, amongst a couple other sources. I hope you found this helpful. Again, this is MD Notified, and I'm Christine Sufchuk, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.